Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Naomi Clark. Naomi has a long career and a wealth of experience in the data space. She started as a graduate in the oil industry. And since then, she's worked in about half a dozen industries. And now she's head of data in the finance sector. I really enjoyed this conversation because Naomi has a really strong background in business data architecture, in business data modeling, and in data governance. I also love the human-centered perspective that she has taken in her approach to looking at businesses. So it's a really, really interesting conversation. And during this, she tells us about her early days working at building management information systems, or MIS. She tells us about the importance of data models for analytics, at the difference between a logical and physical data model and which one is more important, how to define the right meaning of the data in your data models. She tells us about disruptions in the financial sector that literally happened overnight in the past and how the changes that are happening at the moment are much slower than some of the ones that have happened before. She tells us about what is corporate geography and why data analytics is about business and people, how to set priorities on data preparation. And at the end, she tells us a little bit about what will give you an edge in your data science interviews. So we discuss a lot. I hope that you enjoy this interview. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Naomi Clark. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Felipe. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for making the time. Mm-hmm. No, you're welcome. Yes, uh, I just don't know what you're going to ask me, so <laughs> <laughs> no difficult questions. No, it'll be fine. It'll yeah. be fine. So I wanted to ask you about about your background and how you got started into into the data field, and what was it that drew you in? Well, I think it's probably like a lot of people's careers. You don't you find you. So I started my career all oh, in the early 80s with BP. I joined as a graduate on their graduate scheme and BPL International International Marketing. And I was first yes. put into advertising and market research, which on the surface you would probably think has nothing to do with data, but actually it had everything to do with data because you were actually, we were building corporate campaigns for BP uh, and also we were doing a lot of marketing research. So in those days, it was days of big mainframe computers. Mm -hmm. You didn't have the kind of technology you've got now to help it. So there was a lot of handcrafting of data. So you would get data as to where you posted your adverts, what mediums you've used, ITV, BBC, and you'd have to analyse that and the costs. 
And then on the market research side, we used to do lots of surveys as to what products got sold where, what oil was used for what, you name it, what sold in retail stations. And all of that is kind of what would now be called data analytics, customer data analytics, customer journeys. How do you use your normal retail station? And at that time, they were also putting, starting to put supermarkets and food shops into retail. Uh So that was probably my first contact with data. They moved you around. So after 18 months in that, I was moved into AirBP, which is the aviation fueling business. And I was in the operations area and they said to me, well, you're young and numerate. This is on the basis of me having maths maths and physics A-levels along with my geography. (laughs) Therefore, you are the ideal person to have a handle on this new computer things that we've got. And they had um, HP 3000 kit, which at the time was an awful lot better than the IBM MVS type um, situation that most of the rest of the company had. So I actually got drawn in more to the IT side. I had one of the, well, it was the first IBM PC with the five and a quarter inch floppy disks. No one to put it together for me. This is it. Just come from America. You do it. So I gradually started to morph from being just business operations Mm -hmm. to more business IT kind of bridger. And we developed a whole lot of MI systems on um, what we sold where around the world, aviation fueling, airports, who had what costs, um, the trading of the oil, how much prices um, went up or down. So all of that was our kind of system environment. And then the trend within BP was for more IBM type kit. They were putting pressure on us with the HP. And my boss said, I want to know, we need our requirements satisfied. Would you like to go on some courses? And he produced this big book of it was Hoskins courses. Mm -hmm. There we are, four weeks systems analysis, you know, functional design. Go away and do that. Oh, week data analysis. Now, data analysis then doesn't mean doing the statistics and the numbers. What it Mm -hmm. meant was that you look at the business requirements for data and you do a business data data model for that information. You understand the business context and the relationships, and then you then feed that into whatever technical design, physical design that might be chosen, which in those days was kind of hierarchical databases. You might have a 4GL language if you're very lucky. (laughs) So I started to do this, and what was then the kind of data processing department, which actually I think is a far better name because it put the emphasis on what actually the computers were doing Uh, and I think the data words got quite lost quite significantly since they were morphing into the IT department and they were forming uh, an internal consultancy group and so I was pulled over into that at that time more on the functional design expertise because we've been using toolkits that McDonnell Douglas was using at the time BP obviously much more rigorous engineering it was quite a disciplined development process and then that was also the time of information engineering, James Martin, all the new methodologies were coming out for system design, Jordan, Gain and Sarsen. And then on the data modeling side was also taking off. Uh And so I started to really use those tools and techniques. So business data analysis, normalization. And when I say normalization, I mean the real meaning of it. It's in third normal form, Mm -hmm. according to COD's rules. Not that it's all formatted the same way. Yes. 
And again, I was just there at the right time. So BP was really state of the art. So I actually was taught by Ted Codd how to do third normal form and business data modeling. Shows you how old I am. (laughs) But anyway, um, that so that and that foundation has been with me all my life. And this was prior to him actually he starting to build the first relational database, DB2 with IBM. But this was actually prior to that being released. And to my mind, this is quite, this is what people don't realize these days. The number of relational database developers, or actually any database developer, because mm-hmm. business data modeling doesn't matter what, um, relate, uh, sort of doing the, the logical data model, it doesn't matter what you're actually implementing it in physically, the yes. same model holds good. We were implementing in hierarchical, but you could do it object-orientated, Hadoop, whatever you like. It's still the same business pattern. Um, and so I was taught by him and then he brought out DB2 and BP had one of the first DB2 databases. Wow. But even prior to that, with the IBM setup, we had a tool that used to run on it that used to check the normalization and the relationships between all your data. So even in the 80s, we kind of un- we understood data and the business context of the data and the importance of meaning. So I stayed with BP until the time of Big Bang in the city. And this is when all the financial markets were deregulated. So instead of everyone going to the stock exchange and doing business face-to-face, everyone started to do electronic trading. Mm. Now, obviously, the market for young people who knew state-of-the-art stuff was quite, quite good at that time. (laughs) And I got lured by more money into the banking sector. Uh And I actually was working in a company in a uh, in a bank where they literally one day we were on the stock exchange floor and the next day we were going live guilt market making on the desk so that project you know just seeing a whole business model change so we talk about disruption today Mm. that was probably the biggest disruption that there has been in the financial sector now if you consider what's happened perhaps for data in those years going on from there. What that did is deregulating the market also meant dematerialization of product. So when I started, financial products, some of them were still physical. You could have a physical bond, it was a certificate, you had share certificates, pieces of paper. Yes. If you think what's happened over the last 30 odd years, what we've gone to is a completely dematerialized world. Now I'm working in a world where every product we create is actually digital mm-hmm. and all the resources and raw materials that we use to create that product are digital. I'm in a totally virtual world and the evidence to the clients is increasingly digital. They won't get their paper valuation report, they'll look it up on their mobile phone, they'll do their accounts on the phone. So really data and the use of data is bound up with the culture and the situation that you're in and the business that you're in. Mm -hmm. And the view of data over time changes. Going back to 
the logical data modeling approach. I think what happened is, in my sector anyway, as markets deregulated, products got more complex. You got complex derivatives, swaps, instruments with all sorts of underlying instruments and really complicated networks of information around them. That happened to coincide with the growth in IT, the growth of end user computing, the proliferation of products addressing niche needs, the best of breed approach in information technology. So what you've ended up with, and we're now been reaping the whirlwind from after the financial crisis, is by nature the fragmentation of the system and business landscape and the data sets that we use to run the business. So if we think about the, in my sector, the root cause of the financial crash, the Lehman's debacle, half of it, was that you didn't know what your exposure was. Now, that is a fundamentally a data problem. Big banks, very siloed, even asset managers, still siloed. You have particular systems to satisfy particular sets of instruments or stages in the front-to-back process from trading through to back office. All of these systems might have different tables holding issuers, counterparties, brokers, none of it integrated. Mm -hmm. Lehman's could be called different names everywhere. And really, when they went down, the people that knew who their positions were and could rationalise that were the people that had their data in better format and knew the network and the connection. So in financial products, the transparency, if it's a direct transaction on a share, it's very high. You then go through to derivatives where you've got underliers that might contain elements of another business that might be a subsidiary, all the way down to, is that a client of mine? Or is it a customer of my client who leases a building? So When I talk data, I'm not thinking of maths or technology. I'm seeing data as a representation of the real world. And I live in a virtual world, but to me, we're talking about real things. And the importance of business data modeling is that you are actually defining the the real nature of things. What is a bond? What is exactly a customer Mm -hmm. mean to you? It might mean something to you and something different to me. And it actually, it's a philosophical question. It is related to Aristotle, all the philosophers that question what is the fundamental characteristics of something? What makes an entity an entity? And I think this is kind of what draws me into it. And I love, I've sort of naturally got that kind of brain that's the connectedness. So I know earlier you touched on, you know, what's in my background that made me come to this. I suppose I it's more I've always been curious about the world and that means different regions different mm-hmm. peoples what makes people in the landscape as it is and I've never been able to settle on kind of one subject so I like the sciences and I enjoyed that and the maths and the physics but I also like languages mm-hmm. and I'd also done geography as well as my double maths and physics so when it came to choose what I was going 
going to do. Yes. I just went to a normal state, state school in England and I, you know, it was more, oh, what do I feel I want to do? Yeah. And the deputy headmistress there summoned me to her office and I thought I'd done something wrong because you don't sit outside the headmistress's office. Yes. And I went in and she said, I'm retiring next year. I think you ought to apply to Oxford. I want to tell you now. And I was thinking, Oxford? What's Oxford? Oh, you know, oh, Oxford University. Here's a prospectus. So I looked at this, absolutely naive. So I looked through it and I thought, I think I do want to do geography because it connects everything. You've got people, landscape, cultures, resources, infrastructure, language, which is the expression of people's views. Mm-hmm. So much to my teacher's probably horror and surprise, I, I ended up applying to do geography. And so that's what I did. I went to do geography at yes. Oxford in a mixed college. That was quite unusual at the time. They were one of the first. Now, geography, yeah, it was a real mixture. You do the physical landscape, so you're into the physics of things and the maths, did statistics, I did surveying, also processing all of that data, dissertations. Then you have more the human side and the philosophical side. So I also learned philosophy as part of that methodology. Mm -hmm. At the time, I would have said to you, that's probably the least useful thing, but actually it's probably been the most useful thing because questioning and understanding why things are as they are is fundamental to my job now and assessing lots of information instantly. Mm -hmm. And that's something you come out of that training with that I hadn't really appreciated before going there. So it was funny, I went back to a dinner a few months um, ago and my old tutor's there and he said, oh, what kind of, what are you doing? And I sort of laughed and he said, well, I now do corporate geography. And it just came out that way. But in fact, I think that actually summarises what I do. If you think about, I go into lots of different banks and asset managers. I'm looking at the problems, trying to troubleshoot it. They're all like mini nation states in the sense that they've all got their their own culture, their governance, their own language. I mean, just the amount of anacronyms that you find in IT. And of course, that varies from company to company, depending on what they've got and what internal systems they've got. So then you've got um, the resources and the raw materials, which in my world, as we just said, is all virtual data and your manufacturing products, which you are exporting and you're selling to clients. So I suppose data is part of the map in my mind or my view of the landscape of the business. It's the stuff that the business needs in order to do its day-to-day work and the fundamental nature of things that it's interested in. And I've been lucky enough to work in energy, telecommunications, insurance, and all aspects of financial sector, asset management, investment bank, custodians, pensions. But it's the same approach, whatever the industry is. There are standard components. It's just the cultural context and the definitions of things just vary slightly. So in my world, the business data model of the set of financial instruments doesn't vary from when I first did it in, I don't know, 1987 Mm -hmm. to now, doing now, you know, the form of a swap or an ordinary share or a bond is the same in the business data model. It's just the set of technology that we implement it on is completely different. But that's just a physical manifestation. So really, I've always got a business pattern 
pattern in mind. Mm. And then I'm looking as to what instances of data have you got that explain that, the, the, the business nature of things. Uh, so if you start to think about what's termed as data analytics now, you need to kind of go back to what's the business question you're trying to answer. And it's not just a question of I'm really good at maths or statistics or I can run computer programs or use the technology. To be honest, you could use any variants of those. And in my day, I'd have had to use a calculator or whatever. Mm -hmm. What fundamentally will make you good at your job in my mind is that you understand the business questions and you can, it's the creative side in that it's the experimental design. It's the scientist bit of it. What hypothesis are we aiming to, to prove and therefore what data sets will inform us um, about that. So really it comes down to fundamental business definitions of what data mean for me and the real life content. Yeah. Why do you think you ended up in financial services? And and the reason why I want to ask that is because clearly your the way that you think is you have a natural strength in abstracting uh, concepts mm. and seeing the patterns in, mm. in uh, what's in front of you, like be it the real world or a business. And uh, that sort of abstraction, I, I think, and this is why I want to ask you why, <laughs> why you think you ended up in Go and throw it out there. <laughs> it's boring. No, no, no. no, no. It, no it's because <laughs> I, see, I see finance as also as an abstraction of the real world in the sense that, for example, mm -hmm. all businesses are abstracted into, you know, a, a ledger, a balance sheet, uh, you know, the financial yeah. language is sort of what unites yeah. it all and, and obviously that's a strength of yours but what I don't know do you agree and why, why do you yes think I do agree and I think they are related I think that's uh, that's true I think this is why the state of data in financial services lags sort of other places where it's more tangible because we live in that virtual world which is by nature is an abstraction mm -hmm. these financial instruments are often abstractions they're often not even real they're derivatives or nothing so you have to be a person who can deal with that dematerialized nature yes. and then being able to find the skill set that can deal with the further abstraction of the concepts and the data modeling. It's it's an unusual, we find it hard to recruit people, I have to say. I think I, I got it because I, I like a challenge and it has to be an intellectual challenge. And those several layers of abstraction, mm. I think if I think about it now, that probably is one of the things that's attracted me to that it's a very complex area yes it's much more complex than say on the tel telco side where you're just doing billing you can relate to it more as an individual person and you know customer journeys and buying products it's easier to relate to and see but it's much harder on our side to think about experiments and data and how it goes front to back so i think you, yeah you probably hit something on the head um there it seems like you you build your career obviously partly on on this abstraction on being really strong and thinking in abstract sense in terms of mm. data, businesses, finance, etc. But also um, the other thing that stood out to me was 
that it seemed like you built your career on being the bridge between business and IT. Mm. Could you tell us more about that? About what do you see as the the benefits of that, or what makes a a good a good bridge? I think I have, although I'm not a programmer in that sense. Yes, I have done programming and I can do the odd bit of SQL. But I have to say when I've done that, it's almost driven me mad because you can do all the complex logic and then you've got it wrong because you put a semicolon in the right place. So I find that's the frustrating bit for me. I like the logic. I'm quite Mm. a logical person. I enjoy business, but I also enjoy talking and listening to people and understanding different sides. And I love finding out about technology. So maybe it's the language thing again. Mm. You, You end up kind of being bilingual in both. You're learning the business language. That's that kind of culture. And then there's another whole techie language, which, if you like, is another culture within that culture. They've got a local dialect of their own. And it's quite exciting. You're getting different things thrown at you and you've got to pull both sides together. It's often tricky because there's natural sort of antagonism between the two. It's kind of empires and politics. But actually, when it works well and you've got good business architecture people working with good technical architecture people and they both respect their knowledge and you've got technical architects that understand enough of the business and business architects that understand enough of the technology, that's a very powerful combination. And I think you need both of those strengths together in any project or any business because they're the foundations of your operating model so that yes I think it's a fundamental skill set and I think there needs to be more respect between people technology on its own is not the be all and end all and the business couldn't survive without it you need all kinds of people in the team to make the business success and the most successful places I've been have thought about that holistic view what's good for the business as a whole mm-hmm. not got what's good for my silo or my particular technology department or I want the latest gadget that's the problem on the IT side mm-hmm. they'll get seduced by the latest gadget right. without a business problem yes. you're better off talking to the business and then saying I've got just the gadget you need mm-hmm. um, so it's having that that togetherness with a single goal that's important what do you see the benefit of that role of being the bridge and benefit can be for your career or for the teams or for the organizations but what do you see as the the key importance of that bridge mm-hmm. role it has to be ultimately for the organization that you're working for mm-hmm. so that has to be the main goal what's the business it has to be driven by the business strategy or if you work in the voluntary sector or a government organization what are you trying to achieve and so you need the people in your team a lot of it is to do with the management culture and the leadership culture in that organisation. Is if they can inspire people below them to work together cooperatively for the good of the business, that's obviously the goal. You don't see that happen very often, I have to say, yes. but that's what you should aim for. Secondary benefits are obviously 
for your own career and your own personal interests. You learn a hell of a lot just by talking to people and acting between. I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of mentoring and seeing people develop. And I'm very grateful to the people when I was young that taught me about the data modeling and all the new techniques there. So I think if you give, then you get it back as well. And people, even perhaps people who are supposedly quite uninspiring, usually obviously have a, often have a nugget of information that might be useful or a certain so I think treat people with respect and just talk and listen and that's what you need mainly as a data analyst you need to listen to the environment you're in and the signals it's giving off and look for all the connections between things the data and the relationships between things and that's what you're using to create your hypothesis or test your view or look at a new product you've got to understand the motivations behaviors of the culture as much as what the raw information is giving you and what what do you think makes a good business question to to tackle with data or how should people working in the data space how should they pick what business questions to go after or mm. how to prioritize them what do you think makes a, a good one well there's two ways of looking at that isn't there if your business has got clear objectives even the, the strategic side yeah. what you need to be looking for is the various questions that address those objectives having said that that's quite high level i think there's also the lateral thinking that's the if you like deterministic thinking I've got, this is the business objective. We need more market share in X, Y, Z. Therefore, I'll go and analyze ABC and I'll try and get data of how many visits to Walmart and so on and we'll increase our share. There's also the opportunity here for creativity. It's the lateral thinking. Again, looking through those connections. Right, well, I might not be able to get a market share over here, but I can see, oh, all these people, there's much more people going to, oh the, the mini market or now going to Aldi's than there were so what other left field things are coming into it and again that's more do you understand the business context that you're in and can you apply more knowledge of be people's behaviors in that market or competitors coming in so there's the two ways and also the third way I suppose is where you're actually told we need this particular problem addressed. Yes. So I think it's a marrying of the statistical techniques and the analysis technique, but just like going back to my market research days, how you formulate the questionnaire. Mm. If you think about market research questionnaires you're asked, you can actually form the opinions of those that are responding to you. And so right. we actually, it's getting back to data quality, I suppose, and governance we're talking about now. How do you know that the data that you've got is the truth or not biased? So all the rush to go out and buy alternative data sets and look at that, it comes back to fundamentally understanding what the nature of that data is. Mm -hmm. And and what quality is it that you want there? What is the nature of the truth of that data? What are the inherent biases? And there's a lot of talk about all these different biases. Yes. But especially as a woman, I'm only two. <laughs> 
um, knowledgeable as some of those biases. They're just unconscious biases, a lot of them. And if you don't watch it, you've got a self-selecting sample, especially if you're doing customer data and everything else. So you need to be aware of all those things. It's not just a question of trying to grab bits of data, shove it in a database, apply some kind of statistics to it and come out with a number. I've done quite a lot of operational risk work because that was quite a big thing um, started by two that 1990s late 1990s 2000 and I remember an op risk conference sitting there and someone was giving a lecture on the use of Bayesian causal networks to analyze operational risk numbers mm-hmm. now operational risk losses require people to put their hand up and say oh we typed in an extra zero on the end of our trade or we nearly made a mistake the other day and so you've got this mathematical technique (laughs) superimposed upon this absolute mess of data that certainly wouldn't be an honest reflection Mm. of what actually went on in the bank and that to me just epitomized someone who hadn't realized what the basic problem here the basic problem was you needed someone on the ground knowing what people did day to day and having the control processes down there and understanding where people would cut corners and where it's likely to be it's a people cultural behavioral issue maybe if you've got people on the ground there and you can get sort of unbiased data that's great but if it's a self-reporting system and everything else that is or you've got a generic loss event database that is certainly not absolute waste of time you were just geometrically increasing the the lack of confidence in that number from the beginning to the end so that just is a use case from you know the sector i'm in that highlights being careful what it is that you're using us i love mm. that example i think it's a it's a huge problem of not seeing not seeing the realities of the of the problems and the business questions that need to be mm. answered and addressed mm. and blindly use the the tools and the technologies for technology's sake yes. instead of being pulled by a business mm. need so i should say if you want to be interested in data you need to be a conceptual abstract thinker but you need Need to be really interested in the business that you're in mm. and how that fundamentally works and how people behave and act in that business and be quite enthusiastic about that if you're finding that all you're driven by is the technology and the maths then maybe you're more suited to the development side of things whereas the sort of the analytics and the use of data is all about how people interact with the business remember if you it's, it's kind of data lineage that's a real buzzword at the moment Mm. Um, we have to do it from a regulatory point of view I've done a lot of work on BCBS 239 which is kind of data regulations um, that have come in and written governance chapters and things but really at its simplest state you have a business process that you can represent on a process map with responsibilities and swim lanes but the flows from one activity to another in our world because Mm -hmm. it's a virtual world are often data and subsets of data and the risks around that are mainly data risks and that how data flows from one activity to another is your data lineage you can see how it's transformed passed from one person to another so really it's all about what the business process is and what can happen to that data on its way how it can get 
transformed, mistransformed, sent to the wrong people, distorted. We've got the whole end user computing thing with Excel and oh, it's not all these wonderful data visualization tools. Right, we give our business users free access to all this. They can just grab it. So yeah, that, that's a good example. I've lost count of how many emails I have had for we have a data visualization tool. You go in and look at it and they say, you can just pull data in from this database. It's so easy. And I'm looking there going, that is exactly what you, you might want to visualize it. And yes, I want the visualization product, but the key to this is the governance of that data. If someone can take it and manipulate it and change the truth, then that is not what we need, certainly in a regulated environment like us. So to my mind, there's a missing kind of gap in in the data world at the moment, these products set. And that is that takes my business data model, all its business data, data items, normalized business definitions. And there's a tool set that kind of sits in the middle with that and it kind of maps it to where it all is physically and who can use it, the access rights, everything in one place, business kind of controlled. And it acts as that Babelfish, that universal translation layer Mm -hmm. between business language, like the Google Translate for your world. You've got your business definitions and languages and it's mapped to other systems. You keep those mappings and then you can put some kind of reporting layer on the top. And so it's agnostic as to what you're plugging in and you can plug and play. Yes. Now I've seen partial solutions to yes, that. So there are reporting tools that have that semantic layer within it, but then you're within that tool set. So I have not seen that Google Translate app that's standalone that I can put the business data governance and then the technical access and controls all in one place. Yes. Um, so yeah, there's loads of tools that will allow you to dump data in a database, this sort of, um, oh, what do they call it, data wrangling. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, how do you know data wrangling? Have you got control? Are you the data owner of that? How do you know what's right and you're manipulating that format? Yes. Now, within a controlled context, that's fine where it's governed, but certainly in a regulated environment, you do not want people just going in, messing around with data. Reformatting is fine. Being able to automate that translation so you can say that actually equals this over here mm-hmm. or I put those two together and that's the same and it's an automated rule but anything that you can bring manual error into that's not transparent it's just the same as a spreadsheet yes and certainly within our environment now regulatory environment you have to be able to prove lineage you have to be prove you're being transparent fair to customers so this has been a big driver for the financial services to get their act together Mm. on controlling and governing data and also for customer satisfaction if i've got my valuation report or my product my bank accounts i want to know that figures are on there are accurate yes so you don't be like manufacturing a nike trainer knowing that someone's sticking together the sole with sellotape inside this is having worked in a more engineering production environment mm. if i think back to bp days we were programming refinery models and all of that aviation fuel if something goes wrong there's consequences yes. and risk and controls are built in that and you formally specify that system and what's going to 
to happen. I think the tendency, well, in all industries with IT now, is it's so quick and easy to do things, mm. memory, languages, databases, that people love to prototype and try things out, which yes. is a real advantage in kind of speed to market and everything. Mm. But what they forget is when you get to that stage, you need to industrialise that product and make sure that the governance and controls are right around it. And that's the bit that people never go back to. So you end up with lots of different fragmented things stuck together with sellotape because your definition is different to my definition. Yes. And that's the chaos we're in now in a lot of industries. Exactly. We've got more and more data in more and more fragmented systems. No one has the time to find out what it fundamentally means. Mm. There's no kind of curation or very few places where you can go and you can trust the data that's provided. Yes. So that's the state we're in now. We've got growing ethical problems. So if you ask me what are the things that we have to watch out for in the data world, coming up Mm -hmm. but at the moment we're dealing with volumes we're dealing with legacy systems old format but um, thinking forward I think hopefully bringing more the business definition side into it and the governance will help sort out the mess and the integration problem across the data set. But what's certainly coming out now, and don't need to tell you, we're all very well aware of Facebook and everything else, is actually it comes back to who owns data and what do we actually do with it. And within the business now, especially if not perhaps so much where I'm sitting now, but a lot of people I know that are perhaps more in the sales end or retail organisations, it becomes ethical questions of what you can do with this data. The fact you might be able to predict, if you think back to the Tesco club card, Mm -hmm. that they could actually predict that you were having a baby Mm. next week or just from what you were doing, that is very personal information. Um, Do you want your supermarket? Should the supermarket even be doing that? So I can see there's going to be quite a lot of tension between what we've got masses of data, but what should we do with it as opposed to what could we do with it? And like any new invention, we're going to have to come to some arrangement and there'll be good and bad. need to be able to spot it. Exactly. Mm. And I think that they, obviously, as you say, the tension is very present and very alive. And I think that it's only going to increase Mm. uh, in terms of big questions being how do you do good data governance how do you as you were saying Mm. how do you look at the lineage how what Mm. people can and can't do there's a a whole push on the other side of um, the quick prototypes the innovation people Mm. wanting to get things out to market not wanting to uh, lose to the competitor Mm -hmm. because of speed to market how how do you think that the two can be balanced across the, the the whole spectrum of what data can do? Because I think on one end, for example, you have essentially regulatory reporting that would be to a degree standardized and, mm-hmm. you know, and then on the other side, on the, or the, maybe the other end of the spectrum is the, the innovation, the new ideas, the what needs to mm. go to market. How do you think we balance that spectrum of the uses of data with a, a good data governance framework? And, and what mm. are the, the elements of a good one? I think it comes back to people in mm. the end and the culture in your organisation. What does your business stand for? And what kind of business do you want to work for? Mm-hmm. So it's down to probably individual 
individual consciences yes. again a business yes. so what is your brand value for your business mm-hmm. do you want to be mr shady deals or do you want to be Mith- mrs ethical values or somewhere in that spectrum yes. and obviously one side you're into an illegality and the other you're into ultra maybe your usp is that you're ultra ethical Mm -hmm. and you need to have a clear cultural viewpoint and everybody needs to know within that organization where they stand and you need to have sufficient if you like challenge both ways so it needs to be you need to have an open transparent culture as well so that people feel they can share ideas and not a silo culture where people keep things close thinking it gives them more power Mm -hmm. a more open organization would therefore be more powerful because if people have new ideas they can test them with the peers and this is where the new startups and the technology company i mean all right hasn't you could argue it hasn't really worked that well but over the more traditional silo teams you can bring people together they can put ideas across and then you've got a kind of a mediating governance structure over the top that says, well, actually, we'll all brainstorm this, but if we play out this scenario, would we really like that? Would we like that done to us or no? And come to a position between illegality and ultra-conformity. But there's no right answer. It's for what organisation you're in and having clear guidelines within that. And also, you've got to think of your own customer. Do I really want to deliver a rubbish product to my customer? Right, what, what does a good product to look like and then you normally find those fat just like I want to buy ethical clothes or I'm happy to take, you know, non-organic products. It's the same thing with the quality of data. But I think it's also human nature, especially in, in the side of the of the market, to always have a craving for the, the latest and greatest. Something that, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. like something that maybe other people don't have. What what will give yeah. me the edge over my competitors? And I think as 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 companies we obviously succumb to to that in mm. order to to win customers or build trust or anything like that. Yes. And that's sort of... It's the latest shiny thing. We're magpies Correct. for new stuff. <laughs> yes. And then uh, that, yeah. that's sort of the antagonist to data governance mm. in a way because mm. the, the latest and greatest will always be that, that people may want in the market. It it almost, for, for it to have that desire in the market, it almost needs to be seen that it's a little bit outside of the governance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's that dreadful word governance. Mm-hmm. If we took that out of the picture, yes. so say we just look at it in an engineering sense uh-huh. or building sense yes. or health yes. sense. Right, I've got this new shiny drug. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'd really like to try that drug. I think it's going to do it. Right. Am I just happy to take the person's word for it and take it and try it with all the law of unintended consequences? Or do I say, well, actually, there are some minimum standards I have. I at least want to know that no one's taken this drug and dropped down dead. (laughs) So if you see governance in that, I don't, it shouldn't, you see, the trouble is it's seen as bureaucratic. Correct. But it needs to be, if you look at it going back to BP days, Mm -hmm. where we were, say, designing hydrant systems for new airports, you're designing a house. Mm. Governance is just an integral part of that. You want to make sure your electric system conforms to minimum standards. Mm. So I think we need to take more of that engineering approach. As long as things are on the whole 
safe and sound, not health and safety to the nth degree, but you've at least got some context Mm -hmm. and you've got a nimble governance environment. Mm -hmm. So, right, so you want to work in an agile way. That doesn't mean you don't do any standards or any thinking on the business front before you start prototyping. What it means is you chunk things up into sections that are well governed within that section. Mm -hmm. And actually you're relying on the team that takes the problem. They should all have their roles and that the risk and control it's all governance is all about managing risks and putting in appropriate controls really data governance is just part of operational risk and you should be just be thinking we're developing a new product we don't want the risk of our product being bad or any customers being Mm. damaged what do we need to do to mitigate those risks oh if we use bad data that's going to be a big reputational risk to our company it's going to kill it so what can we do to be lean and mean Mm. but keep in mind all the time changing the risky environment and i think so, that's the key how do you have the the appropriate level of of risk mitigation at different stages of of development of an idea mm-hmm. where it, an idea would start as a little seedling and would need you know mm-hmm. a very sort of safe environment for it to start growing roots mm-hmm. and start going into a little plant and then it can yeah. take sort of harsher environment and then harsher environment as it goes on yeah well when you start up you with an idea anything really you've got a free reign haven't you and certainly that's the advantage of modern technology is you can build something within a virtual world it does no harm you don't have to engage with real customers to start off with you've got information you can do a lot of sim i used to do sort of process simulation as well you can Mm -hmm. simulate stuff you can use average data and you can test it and yeah this idea holds good where you've got to start being careful is when that start could do harm yes so once you release something into the general world there's always the law of unintended consequences so that's when you need to start at least thinking about right what if this went wrong could this do this But in doing that, that's not always a negative thing because if you think about where your product's going to be placed and the market it is and the culture and environment, sometimes in looking at the risks, you also see the opportunities. So it's just being careful. It's like when they do drugs uh, analysis, they might play around with lots of formulation and then it gets more and more strict the nearer and nearer it gets to being released onto the market. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it depends on the degree of risk. If you're just doing, I don't know, uh, an app to pack a travel suitcase, there's not much risk of that going wrong. Someone might take no shirts and too many underpants (laughs) on holiday, but there's no actual risk to the end consumer. If you're doing some Something that's aggregating their bank account there's a hell of a lot of risk and I would expect that to be tested to an inch of its life so really it gets back to ethics Mm. and it's how good at your job do you want to be if you're a real engineer data or software you want to produce the best product you can for whatever limit within whatever constraints you've got and just hacking something off with no checks balances someone will find you out of eventually so best to plan a bit before that's right and then how does the the data engineering and the data preparation in order to to have confidence in the numbers and the processing how does that work 
with optimization, with the essentially with the more the I guess optimization and prediction, like the the data science bit, because the two will go hand in hand. That、mm. you can have people analyzing data that has either no or little checks and balances and and little、mm. confidence on on the on the lineage and the provenance、mm. and things like that, or you can spend some time working on on the area of the data preparation before going to the analysis. How do you see those those two sides are working together?、Um, it goes back to the question you're asking. So what quality? So as well as defining what data set you need, you also need to define what quality of data would actually give you the answer.、Mm. So it might be you're just scoping something, in which case having data that you've got less confidence in might not be entirely accurate. You you know statistically what the chances are of it not being good. Well, we'll just try it out.、Mm. If you're using it to do really detailed, say financial. Decisions or things that are really fundamental, then obviously the depth of data quality is greater. So within our sector, there's no way a valuation can go out to a client without、mm-hmm. it being, you know, that everything has to be eyes dotted and crossed. If you were, say, looking at some research in companies and so on, you might be quite happy to go out and look at a news feed that might not necessarily come from a decent source, but you'd. Gather all the set of information, and that's where the human judgment element comes in.、Yes. So, well, I'd say think about what you're trying to do, the hypothesis you're trying to prove, and then, as well as defining what type of attributes you need, what quality of attributes will enable you to have confidence in the decision of enough to progress to the next stage.、Mm-hmm. And does that mean that the the work on those two sides is is sequential, or is it something that can be done in parallel? Well, I think it's the different data sets for、mm-hmm. different things. Every business needs its day-to-day operational data set, and actually, that's a lot of focus of what I do is trying to, in whatever company I've been, is、yes. making sure that the operational data set is of good quality、mm-hmm. and it holds together front to back. Now, that's the backbone of data that you have in your business. It's no good asking what-if questions、mm-hmm. if you don't know who your customers are or you've got your customers in. Ten times in under different headings in the database because you can't marry the two things up. So before you start leaping off into the future, get your house in order first because the data that you're going to get from somewhere else, you'd want that to be fairly reasonable、That's、quantity.、Right. So it's not an either or. You always need the operational data because if your financial accounts are wrong and everything else, that's you know that's you can't do that. But your more creative side, that's where you've got a bit more leeway. But when you join the two together, make sure that you've got the right quality that you need. Yes. So when you join data across legacy systems, the quality might vary between them.、Mm-hmm. So again, it gets back to understanding the nature of the data and the quality it is. Maybe doing cleansing. But doing it in a rigorous, controlled way under business governance—not just thinking, "Oh, I think that looks like that." Oh, I'll put it into some tool, and it says this this field looks remarkably like this one on this other thing. Well, it might. Well, that will give you a hit list. That certainly will give you a hit list, but it is not something that I would take as gospel. So again, use those kind of data profiling tools. Use them to inform you, but、mm-hmm. please don't lose your human judgment. There might. 
come a day. I mean, if I could, if there was a, everyone's, it's on all the conferences, machine learning, AI. Yeah. Now, if there was something that could learn the types of mistakes that happen in certain systems, which is perfectly possible, we need things to solve the day-to-day prosaic problems that can spot things like that and run across products. That's Let's get to base one. Then we can use the data to start predicting other things. Certainly in our industry, I think yes. other industries, it's a different kettle of fish. And if you're an academic or dealing with scientific things, or even perhaps if you're in the gaming world, there's so much hard data they have yes. there that you could trust. You'd take an entirely different view. You know exactly how people are moving, what they're doing, what objects they're picking up. It's kind of more predictable. But yeah, in, in our world where you're dealing with a whole legacy infrastructure and it's very complex and abstract, there's very a lot of danger. You just run something through one of those tools and you're before you know it, you're mapping that position with that. And actually they're totally different. So yeah, be careful. <laughs> yes, no, I agree completely. I've seen some very scary things done with those profiling tools where people say, mm. oh, this column of this data set is, you know, 80% alike to this column <laughs> to the other data set. So I'll just join. But the 80% of what? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. And not yeah. knowing anything about the data set. Or yeah, 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 exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's the dangers of it. It's a really useful tool, but <laughs> yeah, you don't use a hammer for everything. Correct. Yes, it's knowing appropriate tool set for what, what you need. It's, yeah, yeah so does it scary. <laughs> and in, in that in that discussion, you mentioned something that I was hoping that we would go back to because you, you mentioned it at the beginning. And I wanted to ask you about the data definitions. Mm-hmm. And for example, in my case, early in my career, I worked mostly with small businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Where the definition came from one person and everyone. And then, for example, in my case, I would build the database, build the reports, build the analysis. And it was the definitions were known by everyone because mm-hmm. it was a small business. Yeah. I didn't anticipate that going into big businesses, <laughs> it was going to be the mess that it can be sometimes yes uh, so i want to ask your point of view uh, why why is this a problem and how do you go about solving solving yeah, this that's issue that's a very good problem i did some work at a big investment bank and that just epitomizes it and it's normally because people don't ask the right level of why they don't go down to the right level of why mm-hmm. and the exact definitions right so the common one is customer client yes. yeah that's the one that's always, always. the apocryphal full story (laughs) right so you go and ask private banking to them a client is an individual a person um, with all sorts of personal attributes you go and ask a trader and you know it's an entirely different thing it's not so much a, a client um, I might have counterparties out there, but there's still someone and I'm a broker, banks are my client. It's not kind of such a friendly relationship. It might be an organization. Um, so clients come in all sorts of shape and, and color. Yes. So client on its own is kind of meaningless. So what you need to do is then break it down further. And this is where you get into the subtyping. So you've got this generic heading called client or even party or organization. And now you're getting down to, right, I've got a whole universe of organization. 
right, what makes them important to different people? Mm-hmm. What roles are they playing? And you break it down to the next level. And really, you end up with a set of definitions at a lower level. So the example from my industry of financial instruments, we talk about financial instruments or securities in general. Mm-hmm. But if you looked at it from a pure data modeling perspective, they are all different things. If you applied the rules of normalization and analysis, the, pr- the logical primary keys of them all would be different. Mm-hmm. For a derivative, you've got the two counterparties and you've got the instrument. For an ordinary share, you've got the issuing company and a face value. They are legally completely different things. Yes. But we like to put them in this bucket called instrument because it does mean something as a group. So I would say that when you get to definitions, you've got to go to all the touch points in the business mm-hmm. and work out how they see it. And then this is where the business data modeling comes in, is you understand the business context and therefore you can arbitrate as to whether the definitions are exactly the same and you subtype accordingly. Mm -hmm. So you might want that whole superset of everyone basically that anyone sells anything to in the bank, which is basically what a client ends up being at that highest level. But I would never ever expect data ownership to be at that high level. You then have to bring it right the way down to the precise, the lowest level of definition that's kind of meaningful within the same business. And it's usually within different business units within it yes and again from a data modeling perspective what attributes of data do you need again it's subtyping Mm -hmm. is there a common set right well companies we always have we have an organization name we'll have some corporate identifiers corporate address or a person i've got a name so you look at the set of attributes and look for commonality that way as well yes and then you look at roles so if you are you're more precise about asking for definitions the answer will come if you're all muddled at that Correct. You will never, you know, that's a sign that you haven't asked enough detailed questions. Interesting. And you need to model it lower and, down. And how about the cases where different areas would be using the same data and sometimes and often have the, the same name for different definitions? Yeah. But it's, but it's essentially the one. Yeah. Um, right. So if you've got a common definition, so from a business data architectural point of view, I would try and choose a name if you like that was more recognized in the external market as well in the industry so um, that's the first thing I would go for if really different people this happens in languages as well it's the same question Uh so you know you might need French German and English you've got maybe an English name but you Mm. should allow other people to have aliases for the same thing if it's valid so if you can persuade everyone to come up with a common name you might even have to go to neutral territory yeah, and choose something new but really the rules the state data modeling standard should be that you choose something that intuitively you understand what it is yes. then you should always be allowed to have aliases especially when you're coming from legacy systems yes. <laughs> so people inherit systems terms for what actually in the open market or externally there'd be a business term for yes. so you get that kind of transition phase until someone is able to use the new language but really that should be an easy thing to do or if people want to screen in a different language that's a lot of systems have difficulty necessarily doing that but it gets back to that interest in languages and meanings 
Yes. So how do we translate between two languages? The thing that binds it together is, is the meaning the That's same? Right. Therefore, is it the, the same thing? And Back then and how do you make those meanings fluid enough that they can adapt, that the language can adapt as the business grows and adapts while still having enough consistency for them to, to be useful and mm-hmm. make a difference in the company? I think it's trying to make business architecture embedded and change. So as people are coming up with new ideas, yes. being part of that same room, oh, we've got this idea, this concept, we need this piece of data, we think that's it. Business data architect's role is in the middle of that say oh yeah I've got something very similar over here or this person over here in this part of the business their data model's got this is it the same thing Mm. and helping that develop if it's something new it should be a different attribute Mm. if the old thing is no longer fit for purpose then get rid of it and change so I don't think something can be two things at once Mm -hmm. that probably means that actually people are muddling up two different concepts and we haven't asked enough questions of why and what do you use it for and what's the precise definition in fact you might you might want to reuse something that actually it's something different yes and if the and if the two concepts are pointing to the same data then do you copy the data or i'd always try and keep the data once yes yes and you just so you have one business concept it's just got a different alias okay, it's just like having a blue it's just having I want a blue background on my screen or I want to have a green background on yes. my screen it's just the symbol that you use correct correct and the meaning is the is common so if the meaning is common store it once yes and then it's just the presentation layer for the audience that is viewing it so this is why you need the business data architecture because really it's not a list of attribute names you're coming up with mm. it's a list of meanings that's right discrete meanings and discrete sets of data yes and i can i can see your your knowledge of the different types of of databases coming through in mm. in the business data, data model around mm. you know having object oriented databases i don't care i had to some of it was on filing cards when i came through <laughs> so you've got the same the data model holds good whether i store it on a filing card on an old hierarchical database hadoop graph whatever yes Yes. if you do the data model for a person it will be the same same attributes same relationships families you know all of that is the biz- the concept is the same so let's focus on what the concept is mm. and then depending on what we want to use that data for put it into the technical environment that satisfies performance medium all of that yes. as a business architect i don't really care about that as mm. long as the integrity of the data is there that you don't corrupt that business integrity of those relationships and what's the the key i, I think it was implicit in your answer just there but I, I want to make it explicit. What's the key responsibility of the business architect? It's finding out the business data attributes, the, the meanings of the data that's needed to run the business. Yes. The fundamental definitions. What it's the resources that you use to make your products or do what you need to do inside your business. And just like if I was, I don't know, making a cake and I need flour, eggs and, and milk, I need these sets of data 
in order to build my products. And I need to define what I mean by flower. Yes. What grade of flower? Is it corn flower, maize flower? And that's all I'm doing. It's the ingredients to the recipe and the steps in the recipe are the business process. Yeah. And it's kind of the context. Um, don't forget the bowl and the spoon. And there's always other things that you need mm. that might not be apparent data, but ancillary data or tools or techniques. So, yes. yeah, it's it's conceptual, but that's the fundamental architectural backbone to whatever you do, whatever business. Yes. And and regarding definitions, this is the, the last question about <laughs> definitions, but this is so interesting. This is getting very philosophical, but it is. I love it. Yes, yes it's great. One tricky one that I've always seen people, companies struggle with is at what point does a customer become a customer? So when is it, you know, either a prospect, a lead, and then <laughs> yeah, I've done a this customer. Many times. I bet, I bet. That's why I wanted to get your, your thoughts on it. Right. So it gets back to what do you mean by customer? Mm -hmm. Okay. Correct. Is your definition of a customer someone to whom you have made a sale? Or are we really say, let's let's say it's personal customers. Or really, are we talking about a person who goes through a life cycle mm -hmm. of stages with the company? Yes. They start as a prospect, i.e. someone that you know, you've I don't know, you met somewhere at a conference and they said they might be interested in your product. Then the next stage, you actually have a meeting with them and they are very much an incoming customer, whatever you want to have. Yes. So to my mind, those are slightly different things. Now you can either say, my definition of customer is someone to whom I would like to make a sale as well as have making a sale. Mm -hmm. And then within that, You've got the subtypes of the life cycle. So you still need the prospect, the different statuses. I'm a prospect. And the set of data that you have for prospects will be a lot less than you need for uh, another one. Yes. But you still have to model that out. And then you have to know the precise event that defines them as a live customer. Correct. I.e. the cash is in the bank and I have made the sale. Yes. And therefore <laughs> I need to add the extra attributes. So I'd say people who are wrestling with that problem mm. have not really thought it through. Yes. And you can model it either as a super type of customer if you decide you want that general definition, mm. but you still have to model as the subtype or the life cycle stages yes. underneath because the data that you want to have is less. Now you wouldn't want to repeat the same data on a prospect like name, address on a prospect and again on the other yeah. um, type of customer. So my preference would probably be to have a general customer box where you hold common attributes at the entity level and then you have subtypes for other other data or you have stages or something where you're bringing in other data. Or you model a person and you relate it to different customer roles and yes. add in. There's several ways of, of modeling it, but at least start to think what you actually mean by that customer and what that means in terms of the data you need to include and what the behavior of that customer will be within your system and your organization. So again, not enough analysis being done is the diagnosis Correct. of those struggling with that question. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> there's, oh, there's so many things I want to, I want to ask you about, but I, I, I'm going to be respectful of your time. <laughs> so I, um, ah, oh, this has just been such an interesting, interesting conversation. So mm. 
Um, I think that this, what we've been discussing today, I think it's something that is not thought of enough in our industry at, mm-hmm. at the moment. And at least from, from what I've seen, a lot of people studying in the field, sort of graduates mm-hmm. coming in or people working um, early in their careers, they haven't been, in my opinion, exposed enough to, to business data models, yeah. to what proper mm-hmm. governance looks like. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, like it even has a bad name in some places. Yeah. So my, my last question is, what is one takeaway uh, that you would like to leave people with? How, what should they be thinking about in terms of what we discussed and, and what's coming, uh, what they would yeah. need in their careers? I think I would say to you, look, what business is it that you want to be in? Whether you're voluntary sector, finance like me, aviation, whatever it is. Are you curious about that business? Do you understand how the components of that business work? What drives that business? What the connections are, the customers are, the products? Are you curious about finding that out? And as long as you focus on that and listen to people in the business, ask questions, try and find out as much as you can around how it works, then that will come naturally. Because if you understand that, if they don't teach you business data modeling on your computer science course or computing course and I know that some still do if I had the choice of course then go to one that gives you business exposure as well as technology exposure if you're good at picking up computer languages you'll pick up any computer language it's like normal languages you're already good at that if you can pick up something like the business modeling side that's a universal language it's like the Esperanto not that Esperanto is widely used I don't know, maybe English. Um, That will give you a common construct, modeling construct that you can overlay on anything. But wherever you are, just be curious about the world that you're in and find out as much as you can about it and listen and talk to people and study it. And then you'll naturally do this. I've met people who are really bright programmers and technologists and they they are natural conceptualizers. So they will, even though they might not understand business modeling, they actually have modeled the tables in that order because it's, if you know the business, you naturally classify things in that way. So that's the key thing is know your subject. And by that, I don't mean the languages and the technology and the math. They're the tools you need to make most of it. Know where you're working and the human cultural business elements of it. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh, you maybe so I'm much, gonna Ella. come back into fashion now. <laughs> 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 it is. It's going full circle data. It has, hasn't it? It's back to the future. All the mm. disciplines that we had then are now coming back. And we, please, all of you get trained up as much as you can because it's very hard to find this skill set. Yes. You can find people that can program math, statistics. You try to recruit someone. It's all about what hardware and software they've used. Mm-hmm. What I want to know is, are you a conceptual thinker? How can you do a business model? If I, you come to an interview in financial services and I ask you to explain the common sets of data and how they're related are you able to tell me so that is what will give you an edge is yes by all means be the best you can at the technology and everything else but if you can also prove to me that you can be this bridger as well that's and the conceptual thinker that's the kind of person I think anyone would want to have 100% 100% could not agree more (laughs) 
Naomi, thank you so much. No, thank, thank you. you so I really enjoyed the conversation. Same here. It was really <laughs> great. Thanks so much for your time and for sharing all, all this gold with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Good you. luck to everyone out there. <laughs> thank you very much. Before we end today, I would like to tell you about the Chief Data and Analytics Officer Conference that's coming up in Melbourne on September 3rd to the 5th. In this conference, uh, a large percentage of the Chief Data Officers and Chief Analytical Officers in Australia are going to get together to discuss the most pressing challenges in the industry. I will be there and uh, if you are around, please come and say hi. For more information, go to chiefdataanalyticsofficermelbourne.com. That's all one word, chiefdataanalyticsofficermelbourne.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.